Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill podcast in which we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's happening on campus and around the world. Today, we're talking about the flu and other infectious diseases with Professor Ralph Barrick in his office at the UNC Gilling School of Global Public Health. On April 4th, the School of Global Public Health is hosting an interdisciplinary symposium called Going Viral, Impact and Implications of the 1918 Influenza Epidemic. You'll be speaking and moderating some discussions there. So why is it so important to study the 1918 flu? The 1918 influenza pandemic had a significant impact on public, on public health. And in fact, it was one of the main uh, drivers of the development of schools of public health around the country. And uh, this symposium uh, basically is a remembrance of the events that occurred in 1918 and the impact it had not only locally in the state of North Carolina, but nationally in the United States and globally across the entire world. So this uh, symposium reviews the history of the pandemic. It talks about this from both a local perspective, a national and an international perspective. It has speakers from all over the world. There are historians here that will relate and discuss events that occurred here in North Carolina and here even at the, at the University of North Carolina and uh, the impact of the faculty and the leadership at University of North Carolina during the 1918 pandemic. It will discuss the national response, the epidemiology of the disease, the molecular mechanisms that lead to, that led to severe disease with this particular strain of influenza. It will go on to discuss strategies to try to prevent and control future pandemics of influenza virus. So it covers the entire spectrum of, in essence, the global health response network that's been put into place to some extent in consequence of this 1918 pandemic that occurred 100 years ago. What are some examples of the impact that outbreak had on North Carolina, the nation, and the world? In the state of North Carolina, there were at least 13,000 deaths. The exact number of deaths actually are still uncertain because the records weren't all that great. Nationally, there were close to 700,000 Americans that died. In fact, some reports argue that there were more deaths from soldiers in the United States due to 1918 influenza than the enemy. So it caused a huge uh, impact on the military, on military families. Globally, there were somewhere between 20 and 50 million deaths. In some countries, 10% of the mortality in, that, in 1918 were associated with this outbreak. So a huge impact. Parents lost children, children lost parents. It changed, in many ways, the, uh, the structure of uh, society for several years. To give you an example of how quickly this virus spread, in the state of North Carolina, the first cases were reported in late September around the 27th, 28th of September in Raleigh and Wilmington. By the 2nd or 3rd of October, 24 counties were reporting cases. So massive, explosive spread of the virus. Fayetteville was devastated. The other thing that happened was that it was pretty clear from the perspective of governments and medical practitioners, they knew it was influenza, but they didn't really know what to do in terms of how to treat it, how to take care of patients, how to deal with the, the pandemic of this scope. 
the, the number of cases of patients in hospitals, they overwhelmed the hospital care networks that existed. There were so many deaths that in some cases they had to remove bodies from cities by the train load. As you might imagine, that leaves a fairly significant imprint on people who survived the pandemic and a sort of U.S. global response to try to figure out how to prevent such pandemics that might occur in the future. And so to some extent, this symposium tries to capture that evolution of thinking from 1918 historically to where we are in modern day and what can we do, what have we done, what is in place, and how rapidly can we respond for the next pandemic, the flu pandemic, that will certainly occur in the future. There's no question, it will certainly occur in the future. What's been done in the 100 years since that epidemic? Well, 100 years ago, physicians could only treat clinical disease, and the capacity to, to treat that clinical disease was limited. There were certainly no antivirals. They certainly didn't have respirators that they could put people on to help them breathe. If they had multi-organ failure, they didn't have kidney dialysis machines. To some extent, they didn't know how the virus replicated. They didn't know how it caused disease. They didn't even know really what cell types it was preferentially targeting in the host and why people were dying. And so there's this massive vacuum of knowledge that existed in 1918. They didn't know how flu evolved. Historic records in monasteries and throughout Europe have recorded periodic flu-like disease outbreaks from the 1300s, some with mortality rates of about 1%. 1918 was about 3%, 3.5%, depending on where you are, where you were. We knew it was there. We knew it was present. We knew it could cause significant human disease, but we didn't know anything about it. That uh, 1918 flu virus, or its, sort of its ancestors, were first cultured in 1933. We didn't really understand how the viruses evolved and changed every couple of years so that there were cyclic epidemic outbreaks that occurred. Seasonal flu, once it hits about 40,000 cases or so, is considered sort of a new epidemic wave. 40,000 deaths. Sorry, not cases. So over that next 100 years, we figured out what the virus was, how it replicated, what the major surface antigens or surface proteins were on the virus that allowed it to target the lung. We learned how they changed over time, so we, now we know exactly how 1918 evolved over its lifespan, so it, it went extinct in 1956 and was replaced by a new strain of influenza. We know how that occurs. We know the regions of the protein that are targeted by our immune response to prevent the virus from replicating and to kill it. Uh, we know how they change over time. For example, there is a global network that tries to predict the next flu strain that occurs that's going to erupt each year, and they tailor the vaccine to prevent that. It's still somewhat of a guess. Some years they do great, other years they don't do so great. But the science is getting better, and so we're trying, the scientific community is trying to figure out better ways to make predictions about what the next flu strain, what its surface code is going to look like so that we can have better vaccines. We now have drugs against influenza. We have drugs that actually work against the 1918 strain. We have, and we have vaccines, so we're not truly helpless anymore. The biggest issue is how quickly can we get a new vaccine out should a new flu influenza strain emerge suddenly? How many people could get access to it quick enough so that it would prevent high mortality? 
and also uh, how much drug do we have available that we could use to uh, help reduce disease severity in those who can't get the vaccine. You said making the flu vaccine is sort of a guess. This year's flu has been particularly bad. Did those making the vaccine just happen to guess wrong this time? So each year they have to basically predict an H3 strain, which is one of the surface proteins that is causing disease in humans. They have to predict the H1 strain and they have to predict the flu B strain. So they have three guesses they have to make every year. Statistically, that's tough. (laughs) But they missed on their one of those predictions and that's why there were so many cases. Back to the Going Viral Symposium. Why are researchers from all over the world coming here to learn about the 1918 flu? Well, Chapel Hill is a leading institution in emerging viruses. We have experts in alpha viruses, flaviviruses, coronaviruses, and influenza viruses. There's a large number of RNA virologists on campus that work with respiratory viruses. Uh, We also have people that work on Zika and dengue and chikungunya virus, and if you have been paying attention to the headlines in the news, those are viruses that have recently caused big outbreaks of disease. We also have researchers who uh, work on Ebola and were uh, heavily involved in patient care in West Africa during the last Ebola outbreak. So there is a nebulous of world-class virologists uh, at the University of North Carolina. So that's certainly one factor. I think the second factor is is that uh, we have one of the best schools of public health in the nation that has a a world-class epidemiology department and has a world-class faculty who are working on emerging infectious diseases and other emerging diseases that are affecting the globe. And so there's a strong nebulous of interest in in virology, epidemic outbreaks of disease, not only from basic science to sort of public health, not only asking fundamental questions in basic science, but also asking translational questions in how to improve patient care, but also epidemiologic questions in terms of risk factors that lead to new outbreaks of disease. And so this cohort of individuals is really quite spectacular. We have great leadership from the School of Public Health who was interested in reminding the state and the nation that 100 years ago, there was a major pandemic that affected their grandparents' lives in ways that they may or may not know. And so I think those are, are some of the, are probably the sort of the three or four main reasons why the University of North Carolina really decided to take this, this 100-year anniversary of this terrible pandemic and remind the public that there are very, very dangerous pathogens out there in nature, and they emerge in human populations, like cyclic patterns in the past, currently, and will occur in the future, and we need to be prepared. This is sort of an opportunity to educate, an opportunity to remind people how far we've come. In essence, it's their tax dollars that have led to the scientific revolution over the last hundred years in terms of understanding flu and other emerging diseases. So this is, I think, a a novel opportunity that that we can't really let pass by. University of North Carolina has taken uh, really a lead globally in putting together this, this symposium on 1918 flu. I've heard of one other that will occur several months from now in England, in the U.S. I think this is the sort of the showcase of that event. Speaking of Carolina's world-class researchers in infectious diseases, you're one of them. How does this flu symposium relate to the research you do? So I work on emerging infectious diseases. Most of the focus of my laboratory are on 
emerging coronavirus diseases. And in 2003, there was severe acute respiratory coronavirus, SARS coronavirus emerged in Southeast Asia. It spread around the world in less than four months, actually arrived here in Chapel Hill in April, May. And we had a, a tent medical city that was set up in May to do surveillance on about a hundred and some people who were exposed to SARS patients. Just goes to show that a disease that emerges 12,000 miles away in December of 2002 can arrive here in Chapel Hill in May 2003. That was pretty fast. The, 19, the 2009 influenza strain from Mexico got here a lot faster. So I work on SARS and I also work on its cousin, Middle East Respiratory Coronavirus which is another emerging coronavirus that emerged in the Middle East. It's caused about 2,200 cases and about almost 800 deaths globally in, uh, since 2012. The outbreak is still ongoing. Uh, there have been instances where individuals infected in the Middle East uh, went to other countries where they seeded a large epidemic in those other countries. So. WHO lists it as one of its priority pathogens for research. I work on these emerging coronaviruses. Like flu, they have a lot of tricks up their sleeve in terms of how they change their coats and how they can evolve quickly in um, the face of human intervention. Like flu, they're animal pathogens. Uh, influenza is the reservoir, the host reservoir is aquatic birds. Coronaviruses like bats, and so they hang out in bat populations and there's probably about 12,000 of them. And it turns out not a insignificant fraction of them are sort of pre-programmed to be able to replicate just fine in you and I, but they're in bats. There are SARS-like viruses in bats that can replicate as well in uh, model systems of our, of our lung, as well as the SARS epidemic strain. And the same story uh, is likely true for MERS. So I work on those emerging viruses. We do a little bit of flu research, including some uh, research on 1918 flu, because all three of these viruses and other high-path influenza viruses cause a similar disease. It's called acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's a form of severe pneumonia. This is an end-stage lung disease, which means end-stage. When you hear somebody say end-stage lung disease, that's not good. It's clinically very, very difficult to manage. It has about a 30% mortality rate. Both flu and these emerging coronaviruses cause a lot of death via this mechanism. You can compare and contrast how this whole group of respiratory viruses cause disease. You can study them in parallel. And hopefully, by comparing and contrast two very different viruses that cause pretty much the same type of disease, you can figure out new ways to, to try to ameliorate that disease with drugs and small molecules and that kind of thing. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. Be sure to check unc.edu in two weeks for another episode of Well Said, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Android apps.